All right, well, good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28? And this morning, I want to just pick it up in verse 1 again. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Matthew 27, as we have already studied, ends with the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And everyone present that day, from the Pharisees, the Roman soldiers, even Jesus' own disciples, believed that the story of Jesus' life and ministry ended there. And of course, death is where most people believe the story ends for all of us. They say death is inevitable and it's final. And I have to admit, the statistics on death are pretty impressive. Last time I checked, 10 out of 10 people die. So, you know, can't argue with that. But seriously, um, we all know that death is inevitable. I mean, we don't like to talk about it. It's always down the road, far off. You know, we don't like to think about it. We push it from our minds. We deny it. We even try to cheat it. But inevitably, death will claim all of us someday. You know, I read a story about a little girl whose daddy tearfully said to her one summer day, Mommy is dying. She has cancer. There's nothing more the doctors can do. By the time the leaves fall off the trees, Mommy will be gone. Well, as the weeks passed and the leaves began to turn colors and fall, one day the father looked out the window and saw his precious little daughter in the front yard with a ball of twine tying leaves back onto the trees. She was trying to stop the inevitable from happening. Yeah, death is inevitable, but is it really final? Some years ago, a Canadian author named G.B. Hardy wrote a book about life, philosophy, and destiny entitled Countdown, A Time to Choose. In his book, he noted that there are really only two questions to ask with regard to death. One, has anyone defeated it? Number two, if so, did he make a way for us to do it also? Hardy goes on to explain he found the answer to both questions in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus died and was buried, but the story didn't end there. You know, when Satan entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot, who then betrayed Jesus to the Pharisees, scribes, and chief priests, who eventually turned him over to Pilate, who had him crucified, as they laid the body of Jesus in that garden tomb and rolled that large stone over the opening, everyone thought, everyone thought, that that was the end of Jesus. The story was over, and the message went out from the councils of hell, Jesus defeated. You know, it reminds me in some ways of a true story that comes out of history. Let me share it with you. 
June 18, 1815 was a very important day in the history of the world. Napoleon had just left the island of Elba, where he had been rebuilding his army after his exile. Sailing back to the mainland of Europe, with him were 75,000 soldiers, including the Old Guard, perhaps the finest group of fighting men in the world. Although Arthur Wellesley, 1st Duke of Wellington, commander-in-chief of the British forces, pledged to do his best to stop Napoleon, well, the prospect of victory seemed bleak. At Waterloo, with only 67,000 Allied troops, Wellesley engaged Napoleon in battle. If Napoleon, who was heavily favored to win, was indeed victorious, well, there would be no stopping him in his drive to reconquer all of Europe. The people in England waited for hours as the battle waged. Eager for news, they had a ship waiting in the English Channel, which would signal the outcome of this historic battle to watchmen stationed in the towers along the shores of Dover. Finally, word of the battle reached the signal ship, and they began to flag a message to the watchmen in the towers. And it came through one letter at a time, painstakingly slow, W-E-L-L-I-N-G-T-O-N, Wellington, the second word began to take shape, D-E-F-E-A-T-E-D, defeated. By then, a fog bank had rolled in and completely enshrouded the towers. Well, the hearts of the watchmen sank. But they quickly relayed the word to the waiting messengers on, on horseback, and the message spread like wildfire throughout all England. Wellington defeated. Hopelessness and despair set in, as the British knew it would only be a matter of time before Napoleon would sail across the channel and lay claim to their country. However, by this time the fog had lifted, and after firing a cannon to get the attention of those in the tower, flags began to wave again to signal the third and final word of the message, the word Napoleon. The full message, Wellington defeated Napoleon. And so, too, when Jesus died and was buried, a fog seemed to enshroud humanity. Darkness fell on the land. The earth quaked. As all of creation seemed to be crying out, Jesus defeated. Of course, hopelessness and despair filled the disciples' hearts, and heaven itself held its breath, as it seemed now nothing would be able to stop the devil and his chief ally, death. But on the third day, the fog lifted. And Jesus stepped in the tomb, and the full message was broadcast to the world. Jesus defeated death. Satan had been defeated, death had been conquered, and the angels joyfully proclaimed to the women that first resurrection Sunday morning, he isn't here, he is risen. Go tell his disciples. You know, many centuries ago, Job asked the question, if a man dies, will he live again? And guys, that question has burned in the heart of every person ever since the beginning of time, ever since the very first time man was made to taste death, the question that has both haunted and hounded man has been, what happens after I die? Is death the end, or is it merely a doorway that leads into another life? Well, Jesus answered that question. He said, because I live, you will live also. In other words, Jesus was saying that through his resurrection, he was going to conquer death so that death would no longer be able to hold us. And if we believe in him and give our hearts to him and make him our Lord and Savior because he died and rose again, so too we would rise from the dead someday. If a man dies, will he live again? Well, because of what Jesus did early one Sunday morning just outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, 
The answer is a resounding yes. You know, C.H. Spurgeon said this, and I quote, he said, The massive door you will observe was taken away from the grave, not merely opened but flung aside, rolled away. And henceforth death's ancient prison house is without a door. The saints shall pass in, but they shall not be shut in. They shall tarry there as in an open cavern, but there is nothing to prevent their coming forth from it in due time. End quote. Well, we need to kind of answer some of the skeptics, some of the critics, okay? Because not everybody believes in the resurrection. And the question I want to spend the rest of our time dealing with this morning is, is the resurrection reliable? Is it reliable? Because skeptics are quick to point out that an empty tomb doesn't prove Jesus rose from the dead, and that's true. They present several theories that explain the empty tomb without the resurrection. We talked about the swoon theory. This is where some believe that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He passed out from loss of blood and all, and uh, they thought he was dead. They took him down and laid him in the tomb, and the cool air of the tomb mixed with the, uh, the pungent aroma of the spices revived him. And then he was able to make his way out, and then everyone thought he rose from the dead, but he never died in the first place. Now, we've talked about this, okay? I mean, good heavens, as we have studied how Jesus was beaten before his crucifixion, what they did to him. And then they scourged him. Many men died right there at the scourging post. It was so brutal. And then they took him and they hung him on a cross for six hours and then put him in a tomb, wrapped in linen clothes. And before, of course, they put him in the tomb to make sure he was dead. The soldier ran a spear through his side, piercing his heart. I mean, to think that a man could actually survive all of that wake up in the tomb because he never died in the first place, unwrap himself, roll the stone away from the opening of the tomb from the inside, and escape in front of the guards, and then appear and disappear all over the Galilee and Jerusalem, appearing to his disciples and so on for those 40 days after his resurrection. I mean, that takes more faith than just believing Jesus was his God who rose from the dead. Another one is the no burial theory. What is this? Well, they believe that, look, when the women went to the tomb and found it empty, that was because the Romans never put the body of Jesus in the tomb. You see, that was mistaken, the girls were. The Romans took the body and threw it in a shallow grave, as they did with the bodies of many common criminals that had been executed. So it wasn't that he had risen from the dead. The women just misunderstood because he was never actually buried in that tomb. Well, the Gospels say that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to Pilate and ask for the body. That Joseph had prepared this tomb for Jesus. And uh, that's, in fact, where his body was laid. The women saw the body being put into that tomb. They were watching. And they purposed to come back Sunday morning to finish preparing his body properly for burial. So they knew what, where he was buried. Then there is the third. I'm just going to give you four of the more common ones. There is what is called the hallucination theory. What is that? Well, uh, under extreme duress, when you miss a person who has died so much, sometimes you are able to hallucinate that you actually see the person back from the dead. And this is what happened, they say. The disciples were so overcome with grief that they hallucinated Jesus had risen from the dead. Well, as we're going to see, 
he appeared to over 500 at one time up in Galilee. I mean, they all hallucinated the same thing at the same time? That's, to me, ridiculous. Number four, we see the mistaken identity theory. What is that? Well, that someone impersonated Jesus after his death, an imposter pretending that he was the risen Christ. Well, (laughs) Jesus bore the marks of his crucifixion after his resurrection. So this person would have had to have been beaten pretty badly to mimic Jesus. Uh, He would have had to have rolled the stone away and stolen the body himself because the tomb had to be empty. This charade was going to be plausible. I mean, it's so ridiculous, it's absurd. And probably the most popular theory for them all, the one that got its start way back at the time of Jesus' actual resurrection, was the theft theory. The theft theory. Look at verse 11. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. The tomb was empty. His body is gone. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this thing comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Well, it's still going on today. 1967, the Passover plot by Schoenfeld uh, presented that very thing, that the disciples stole the body and just merely went out saying that he had risen from the dead, when in fact they knew he had not. Look, there were three obstacles or safeguards that secured the tomb that would have prohibited Jesus' disciples from getting in, or Jesus, if he was just a mere man who had not really died in the cross, but had only you know, passed out and then revived in the tomb, uh, these things would have kept Jesus from getting out if he was just a mere man. First of all was the stone, as we mentioned. A very large, round, flat stone weighing between three and 4,000 pounds. It sat in a channel and was rolled down a slight incline over the mouth of the tomb. That was the first obstacle that uh, people had to get past. The second was the fact that the the stone was sealed with a Roman seal. And once Rome sealed something, if you broke it, it meant your life. It was, you only broke it under the penalty of death. So that carried a lot of weight right there. Because you didn't want to mess with an official Roman seal, it meant your life. And number three, the Roman guard. Now, every time I've seen Hollywood produce a movie which contains the resurrection. Maybe you've noticed this. Here's the tomb, and about a block away are the soldiers, you know, talking and sleeping or whatever else. But here's the thing. There were 18 different things a Roman soldier would be put to death over. One of those was falling asleep on duty, and Jesus was guarded by four soldiers at a time taking three-hour shifts. These soldiers were called a quaternion. Four soldiers guarding him three or four hours apiece, maybe even six. I forgot exactly. But here's the thing. Even if one of those soldiers fell asleep on duty, all four were executed, which meant there was some serious motivation (laughs) to make sure that nobody dozed off on duty. Look, in his book, I Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus, author George Ladd argues uh, that in verifying the resurrection of Jesus, we should start, listen, with what most people agree on, and then work our way out from there. It's a good idea. 
So let's start with the givens, the things we know for sure, the things the skeptics acknowledge are true. First of all, Jesus predicted his crucifixion and resurrection. In fact, on four different occasions in the Gospels, Jesus predicted that he was going to be crucified when he got to Jerusalem, and on the third day he would rise again. Now, skeptics claim that those predictions were written after the resurrection by the Gospel writers. But the fact is that those predictions were well known even by the enemies of Jesus who actually do us a great favor. Because it's easy to say, well, his disciples, his friends, his allies, they concocted these things. They said he had said he was going to rise from the dead. But look, his enemies were saying the same thing. His enemies were afraid that, you know, not that they believed he was going to rise from the dead. They thought, well, the disciples are going to come and steal the body and claim he rose. But they knew what he had claimed. They didn't believe it. But they knew he had claimed he was going to rise from the dead. And this was proven by what they did on Saturday, the day before Jesus actually rose from the dead. In Matthew 27, in verse 62, now Jesus has already been crucified and he has been buried. On the next day, Saturday, the day before the resurrection, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. So they acknowledged Jesus Christ had predicted he would rise from the dead. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people he has risen from the dead, so that the last deception is, first, is worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So Jesus Christ predicted his resurrection. Number two, we know the disciples weren't mentally prepared for the resurrection. Listen, their mindset was one of conquest, not crucifixion. What do I mean? They were looking for Jesus as Messiah to lead them in a revolt against Rome to conquer over Rome to establish then the kingdom. So that when Jesus was arrested in the garden that morning before his crucifixion, that took them by surprise. And of course, then as he was crucified, they, they split. Okay, they fled in every direction. Why? Because they were terrified that Rome was going to come for them next as the followers of Christ. So, you know, they weren't thinking, hey, let's steal the body and tell everybody he rose from the dead so we can kind of perpetuate our ministry. Are you kidding me? Their ministry was sitting on his right hand and left hand, living it up in the kingdom. That was their ministry, okay? That's what they were thinking, all right? I want to be a prime minister. I want to get the goodies, okay? I want all this, this good stuff that, that we're going to get as prime ministers in the kingdom. When Jesus was crucified, man, their hopes and dreams were shattered, and their lives were in danger, they felt. So they fled and they hid. So much so that when the resurrection finally happened, it took them by surprise. And this is evidence in the fact that uh, in the reaction of the disciples to the report of the women that Sunday morning, when the women came to the disciples, ran to them, said, look, we were just at the tomb. It's empty. Jesus is gone. And, and an angel has told us he has risen from the dead. And these great men of faith, you know what it says about them? Luke 24, verse 11, And the words of the women seemed to them, to these disciples of Jesus, like idle tales, and they did not believe them. 
They still didn't believe, okay? Even after the girl said we were just at the tomb, it's empty. Jesus is gone. An angel has told us he has risen and to tell you guys. So they weren't mentally prepared. Number three, Jesus was dead and buried. Look, as we've already pointed out, Rome knew how to execute people. And some estimate by the time that Jesus was crucified, close to 70,000 people had been crucified by the Roman government. And here's something else you may not know. Four executioners had to sign off on every crucified criminal's death. Four men had to sign off on Jesus' death certificate. To sign a death certificate when a person condemned to die had not really died was to bring the death penalty upon yourself. So consequently, they wanted to make real sure, okay, that before they signed anyone's death certificate that that person was really, in fact, dead. Now, Jesus' death was a little unusual for these Roman soldiers. He didn't languish on the cross as long as many did. Why? Because he chose the exact moment of his death. Remember 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Why 3 o'clock? That was the time of the evening sacrifice for the sins of the nation. He died at the very moment the sacrifice was being made for the sins of the nation. But because he died so quickly, one of the Roman soldiers took his spear and he pierced Jesus' side. And out came the water and the blood. As we said a few weeks ago, many believe Jesus Christ died of a rupture or a broken heart, which would have allowed blood to spill into the pericardium, which is the sac surrounding the heart. So when the soldier pierced his side, ran that spear into his side, it pierced the pericardium, and water or clear lymphatic fluid mixed with coagulated blood came out. In other words, it proved Jesus was dead. And the Romans knew how to tell if a person was dead or not. And so Jesus was dead. They knew that. Number four, another thing that everyone pretty much agrees on if they're a sincere and honest skeptic, the tomb was empty. The body of Jesus was gone. Look, if it wasn't, the Roman authorities and or the Jewish leadership would have produced the body of Jesus as soon as his disciples started going around preaching that he had risen from the dead. I mean, if they had the body, if they had thrown it into a shallow grave like some believe, and here the disciples went to the tomb, oh, it's empty, he's risen, let's go tell everybody. Oh, no, 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 no. They would have quickly produced the body and said, here it is. We just threw it in a shallow grave as we are accustomed to doing. Now look, once again, it is true an empty tomb doesn't necessarily prove that Jesus rose from the dead. But the tomb was empty, that's a fact. Even the critics acknowledge that. It's a historical fact. The question then becomes, who moved the stone and took the body. Now there's only really four plausible explanations. And I say plausible, I'm pushing it. Okay? Who could have possibly moved the stone and taken the body? Well, the Romans could have done it. But would they have done it? Well, what would they have gained? Okay? Uh, Pilate told the Jewish leadership, you go seal the tomb. All right? You've got Roman soldiers at your disposal. You take them and you seal the, the tomb. So Rome wouldn't have taken the body. Why would they have? Well, the Jewish leadership could have taken it. No, because again, they were the ones that wanted it secured. They were the ones that finally did post the guards uh, on the tomb after they had sealed it. You say, well, the disciples could have taken it. You know, we just talked about that. These guys weren't thinking about 
perpetuating any kind of ministry, preaching Jesus rose from the dead. They were hiding out for their lives, not even thinking of resurrection because it took them by surprise that Sunday morning. You say, well, local grave robbers could have done it. Well, why would a local grave robber rob a grave? They would only do it if they thought there was something valuable they were going to get from doing it. Jesus was a poor itinerant preacher. When he was crucified, he only had the clothes on his back. I mean, everyone knew that. He was not a wealthy man. And besides that, no grave robber would dare mess with the Roman government. I mean, a sealed tomb with soldiers outside guarding it? No way. No way. All right? So that's just ridiculous, these ideas. Of course, the fifth possibility is that no one took the body of Jesus. He rose from the dead. But that's just too easy. Okay? The, these theories, I tell you what, uh, it takes more faith to believe these wild theories and just believe Jesus rose from the dead. But if you don't want to believe, you're going to have to come up with something, right? Number five. We also know for sure that over 500 disciples saw the risen Christ at one time. You know, the noted French philosopher Renan tried to discredit the resurrection by foolishly claiming the whole idea was based on the hysterical delusions of Mary Magdalene. But again, Mary wasn't the only one who saw the risen Christ. I mean, he appeared to numerous people after his resurrection. And again, at one time, he appeared to over 500 disciples up in the Galilee. In fact, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And let's pick it up in verse 3, where Paul said, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, that would be Peter, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So Paul says most of the people that over 500 at one time, and most of them are still alive, Paul says. Few have died, but most of them are still alive. They saw the risen Christ. Verse 7, after that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Now, after these folks saw the risen Christ, it motivated them, it compelled them to go out and begin to preach that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. That didn't sit well with the Roman government for a lot of reasons. And eventually, Rome began to kill the disciples of Christ, who at any time could have saved their lives if they would recant their testimony that they had seen the risen Christ, that they had just said no. See, and you have to understand how the Romans killed these disciples. It wasn't quick and painless, believe me. Many were crucified. Some were dragged behind horses up and down the stone Colosseum steps until their brains were dashed out. Some of them were skinned alive. Some of them were covered with pitch and lit on fire. Some of them were sewn into the carcasses of dead animals and then thrown out into the open field so other animals came and ate the carcass and the person inside. At any time they could have escaped this torturous death if they would have said, no, 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 look, okay, you know what? We made it all up. It was Peter. Peter put us up to it, okay? He, he told us to, to, to tell, you know, we, we got together, we, we fabricated the story, and it, it was all Peter's idea. Not one of them, when facing death, recanted the testimony that they had seen the risen Christ. You know, when Lucifer presented himself to the Lord, 
And the Lord said to him, Have you considered my servant Job? Not a more righteous man on the face of the earth who loves me and keeps my commandments. Satan said, Sure, he keeps your commandments. He blessed his sandals off. Why wouldn't he keep your commandments? Besides that, you put a wall around him. I can't get at him. Let me get at this guy, and I'll have him curse you to your face. Because you know what? Skin for skin, all that a man has will he give for his life. Hey, Satan's been studying this for a long time. He knows that when facing death, the survival instinct kicks in. And when that happens, most people won't even die for the truth, let alone die for a lie. Nobody has ever died for a lie, okay? I mean, nobody who knows they're lying and can spare their life by just recanting what they're saying, nobody's going to die for a lie. People say, well, these Muslims who are blowing themselves up, for Allah, they're dying for a lie. Yeah, but they think it's the truth. They think it's the truth. We know it's a lie. They think it's the truth. Therefore, they're dying for what they believe is the truth. This, to me, guys, has to be the most powerful evidence for the validity of the resurrection. That these men and women were willing to die for what they believed in because they believed it was true, that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. I'll give you two more. These same disciples began preaching and testifying of the resurrection in Jerusalem. So what does that prove? Well, look, if you're going to try to present a lie, okay, that Jesus Christ, he didn't rise from the dead, that the tomb was not empty, right? If you're going to try to fabricate a lie like that, you don't do it 50 days after the fact in the very place Jesus died and rose from the dead. You just don't do that. Too many eyewitnesses. Too many people know what happened. I'll give you an example, okay? John F. Kennedy was shot in Dallas in 1963, right? What if somebody would have waited 50 days, gone back to Dallas and said, no, 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 he actually died in a plane crash? How much traction do you think that would have gotten? First would have been drummed out of, out of town on a rail. You don't, if you're going to perpetuate a lie, you don't go to the place where it happened where people know what happened. You go somewhere else, Okay. The fact that these men began to preach the resurrection in the very place Jesus rose tells me they had nothing to hide. They were not trying to lie about anything. You only do something like that if you have the truth. And you're not afraid to speak it out because you have the facts on your side. And then number seven, we have 27 separate New Testament documents all affirming the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These are written by men who were eyewitnesses. I was talking to somebody at their first service, and they were saying, look, I talked to a Muslim that I work with, and he just rejects everything. We talk, I tell him the evidence, and he just laughs and just, that's not true. Look, if you're going to reject eyewitness testimony, then our whole system of jurisprudence collapses because it's all built on eyewitness testimony. If you're going to reject eyewitness testimony for the historicity of some event, then unless you were there to see it with your own eyes, you might as well reject it. Washington crossing the Delaware, any other event from history, if you weren't there to see it, if it wasn't filmed, it was only written about through eyewitness testimony, but you reject that, then nothing in history is provable. Let's not have a double standard. The skeptic or the critic wants to apply a different standard to the resurrection evidence of Christ than they do to any other event in history. You can't do that. That is unfair. It's not, you know, upright. You have all these eyewitness accounts. 
Not to mention the fact, how do you explain these disciples who were cowering in the upper room for the weekend of Jesus, he was in the, in the tomb, and then Sunday evening they saw the risen Christ, and all of a sudden they're out preaching the gospel on this. They went from cowards to conquerors overnight. What changed these men and women who just a day earlier were hiding out for their lives, afraid for their lives, now are on the streets preaching boldly the resurrection of Christ? Something had to happen to change these people. I believe it was seeing, again, the risen Christ. This is especially powerful when it comes to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul, okay? You, you read the accounts in the, in the New Testament, the book of Acts primarily. I mean, Saul of Tarsus was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous for the law. When Christianity emerged, he thought it was a cult. With all of his heart, he wanted to stamp out this cult that was coming against the truth, which he believed Judaism was. So he was like a madman. He was pulling Christians out of their house to stay in trial. He got some letters from the chief priest to go up to Damascus because there was a group of Christians up there. And on the way, we know, Acts chapter 9, he met the risen Christ on the road. And anyone who wants to deny that then has to explain to us how the greatest antagonist of the Christian faith turned around overnight to become the greatest champion of the faith. What changed Paul? Well, he said himself, it was seeing the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Some of us may not understand how powerful that really was as far as transformation is concerned. But let me say this to you. I read a story years ago about two professors from Oxford. One was named Lord Littleton. The other was named Benjamin Gilbert West. They were intellectuals. They were unbelievers. And they really wanted to give the death blow to Christianity because Christianity was stupid. People that believed in this Christianity stuff, resurrection and all that, they were just superstitious morons, basically. So we're enlightened. We're smart. We're going to prove once and for all Christianity is just a myth. And uh, that'll be the end of it. Okay. So they felt like they had to deal with two main issues. They wanted to destroy Christianity. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord Littleton chose the conversion of Saul, and Benjamin West chose the resurrection of Christ. They both took a leave of absence from the university and went their separate ways to do their own research into both things, you know, the conversion of Saul and the resurrection of Christ. During the course of their research, because of the evidence, they became Christians. But were afraid to tell the other because they didn't know the other guy had become a Christian. <laughs> After they fessed up and they both realized that they had both, based on evidence, had become Christians, they collaborated and wrote a book called Observations of the History and the Evidences for the Resurrection. And they said, if a person rejects the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they do so, listen, not on the basis of the evidence, but on the basis of ignorance and or stubborn, willful unbelief. The Guinness Book's record holder for most successful trial lawyer in history, Sir Lionel Lucku, examined the evidence for Christ's resurrection and wound up giving his life to Jesus Christ. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, the famous 19th century professor of law at Harvard University, was a very verbal skeptic of Christianity. And he had written a set of books called The Laws of Legal Evidence and was challenged by some of his students who were Christians 
to apply those very laws to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, he accepted the challenge. And in the process, he became a Christian. His conclusion was, and I'm quoting him now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the best established events of history according to the laws of legal evidence administered in the courts of justice. He went on to say, all that Christianity asks of men, its critics, is that they would treat its evidences as they treat the evidence of any other thing in a human court of law. And yet the sad reality is that many people and many intelligent people go on denying or flat out ignoring the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, Thomas Jefferson was a great man. He was a brilliant man. But he was a man who did not believe in the miraculous. He loved the Bible, but he just didn't believe the miracles in the Bible. He didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God or that he rose from the dead. And because he loved the Bible but didn't want to accept all that was in the Bible, the New Testament I'm thinking of, he decided to edit his own version. Can you imagine that? Okay. There's a lot of people today who are actually editing their own version of the Bible, picking and choosing what they want to believe, throwing the rest out. So he's not alone. He edited his own special version of the New Testament in which all references to the supernatural, the deity of Christ, resurrection, were deleted. In his version of the Gospels, he confined himself solely to the moral teachings of Christ. So if you read the Jefferson New Testament, you read the Gospels, it's all about the moral teachings of Christ. No miracles, though, no mention of his deity, certainly no uh, talk of the resurrection. In fact, the closing words in Jefferson's Bible with regard to the Gospels, now here's how the Gospels end in the Jefferson Bible. There they laid Jesus in the tomb and rolled a great stone over the mouth of the sepulchre and departed. End of story. <laughs> Jefferson just decided miracles are impossible, therefore the resurrection would have been a miracle. Miracles don't happen, therefore the resurrection didn't happen. He came to that conclusion not based on the evidence, he refused to look at the evidence. Kind of like a lot of people today, okay? It, it's, you know, you try to show them the evidence, they don't care. They know what they believe. It's kind of like, I know what I believe, don't confuse me with the facts, is the idea. So unfortunately for Jefferson, and I'm sure he regrets this today, but unfortunately for Jefferson, the story of Jesus ended with a dead prophet and not with a resurrected Savior. That stands in stark contrast to the triumphant words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And with a little story I heard years ago. It took place many years ago in Russia, communist country, on Easter morning, where a service was being conducted celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Well, the Russian government had dispatched ministers to go to these churches to disrupt the services, to take the pulpit away from the pastor, to basically say how foolish it was to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how foolish it was to have faith in a dead carpenter, I mean, government is your God, okay? Communism teaches that, basically. And so he pontificated for about an hour, laying out all the facts as he saw it as to why Christianity was ridiculous, the resurrection didn't happen. After an hour, it was worth of ranting and rambling and preaching. He felt he had made his case sufficiently, steps away from the pulpit, the pastor steps up to the pulpit and simply says, He is risen! 
And everyone responded, he is risen indeed. Look, skeptics can say whatever they want. They can believe whatever they want. But the facts are on our side. And honest men and women who are, have been skeptics but who have checked out the evidence and the facts for themselves have come away believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, therefore believing he is God, therefore believing all that he said, therefore coming to faith based on all of that. And if there's anyone here today, let me just say to you, who has not received Christ as your Lord and Savior, Peter said, we have many infallible proofs that prove our faith. It's not a blind leap in the dark by any means. The atheists, they're making a blind leap in the dark. We have the evidence on our side. But all the evidence in the world won't force you to believe if you choose not to believe. But if you really want to know the truth, if you really want to know, is there something after I die, is death the end? Or is it simply a doorway into another life, an eternal life? Then I encourage you to stop and consider the evidences for the resurrection and for who Jesus claimed to be. And my prayer is that you will look at the evidence honestly and drop to your knees and receive him as your Lord and Savior. May God give grace to anyone here who has not received Christ that you will not. And I get the blessing of preaching the resurrection at Christmas time. You can't get any better than that. All right? May God give you the grace to receive him as your living Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that our faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It is reasonable, rational, and reliable. It's based on hard evidence. And we thank you, Lord, for that. And Father, anybody here this morning who has not made a commitment to Jesus Christ based on the facts, Father, don't let them have a moment's peace until they find peace in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that we serve not a dead prophet, but a living Savior. Mohammed, he's a dead prophet. Buddha, he's a dead philosopher. I mean, we serve a living Savior who is the Son of God. We just thank you, Lord, for that. Because he lives... We know that we will live again someday as well. We just thank you for all these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.